Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Wallen, and John Papa talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Real Talk JavaScript. This is episode 28, The Rise of Tech, Enterprise Engineering Myths. And today we have a guest of Jem Young from Netflix. How you doing, Jem? Hey, John. How's it going? Pretty good. And my co-host, Ward, are you still hanging in there? Hanging. I am indeed hanging in there. Speaking of hanging, <clears throat> I've been spending way too much time watching scary climbing movies. Scary climbing movies. Is that a thing? It's like a new it, genre? It's well, no, it's been out there for a while, but there's it's it's fascinating. I don't I don't know why, because I don't want to climb anything. Um, I'm imagining you on a mountain with like saw chasing after you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> e, e, e. Different reference, but you get it. <clears throat> no, I, I can can I just throw um we we have all been tricked by the movie industry and the TV industry. Like you ever see one of those movies where they're hanging off a ledge of a building or a rock? It actually doesn't matter at all. You're not going to tell me that's not real, are you, Joe? <laughs> I mean, not only is it not real, it's not physically possible for 99.999% of people. Uh, oh, God, you just blew it. Oh. I, I know. I know. Sorry. Sorry that's, that's what we're doing this episode, just dispelling oh. myths. 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 This is the. I, I tell you what, go, go to the gym sometime or anywhere. Find a bar. And then hang there as long as you can. And then for extra challenge, try to hang there with one arm and see how long you make it. You know, I can hang for about 10 minutes from a dumbbell laying on the floor. Hmm. That's uh, <laughs> only 10 minutes. That's uh, still disappointing. <laughs> Did you fall asleep when this happened? Usually, yes. I <laughs> but I hear you. You know, I go to the gym and doing pull-ups. It's like, you know, you see these people in the movies or on these workout videos and they're like, you know, they're at 522. You know, I'm like, <laughs> you go to the gym, I'm like, one. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> so I am pasting the world's, the, the current record uh, for fastest uh, climb in the gym. It's like under five seconds. Mm. Climb uh, of, of what? Uh, uh, a wall. Uh, there's, there's, uh, the, the Olympics, this, this coming Olympics, they will have climbing as one of the exhibitions and one of the three events within that is, did, uh, did you make the team? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, John, watch for me at the Olympics. I don't even know where the Olympics are going to be, let alone anyway. Uh, so, so everything was great until Jem told me that it was all faked. And that's what we're here to do in this episode, actually, is to dispel a bunch of myths. But why don't we introduce our, our guest today? Jem is a software engineer in San Francisco. He currently works at Netflix, a little company you may have heard of, where he works on the user interface team. In his free time, he hassles other engineers to write more tests, and his usual hobbies are petting random dogs. That's interesting. Ducking in subways and reading a ton of books. <laughs> so welcome on board, Jem. Thanks, John Ward. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, this is great. So we had your your buddy Ryan Burgess on a couple of episodes ago. Uh, you guys do a podcast together, right? Uh, yes, we do. It's called Front and Happier, where um, we pretty much have uh, 
a bar like conversation about tech uh, front end things we might run into, but it, it's more casual, just like a couple of friends sitting around just arguing about things. And the main tech that you work in at Netflix is that React. Oh uh, yeah, React and uh, increasingly a lot of Node for me. Okay, so you guys do full stack there, or at least you do full stack as well. Yes, but I feel like if I say that, I will get a lot of ads on Twitter about the definition of what full stack is. Yeah, well, let's get started. What is full <laughs> what does stack, that mean? Dude? What does it mean? Oh, so I I don't want to be one of those people to plug my own things, but I do have a course on. <laughs> Uh, front-end masters called Full Stack Engineering, parts one and two, uh, where I do dive into full stack. So my opinion of full stack is someone that understands all of the layers. So that's the network layer. That's pretty um, much nobody. Exactly. And no, no. So it's possible. It is absolutely possible. Uh, I think most people are around there. Like more experienced people like yourselves are probably around there more than you think. It's hard to be really, really good. At all of the stack. Actually, I would say it's impossible to be good at the entire stack. But it's good to understand all of it. And that's what I would say. Someone understands databases. Someone understands the front end. Someone understands the back end. uh, Someone understands security. And like all these things are specializations in themselves. So you probably all have touched a little bit of that. But no one can be good at all of it. So I would not say that Netflix, I'm a full stack engineer. I don't. I have no idea how many different databases we use. It's it's a lot. And I don't know anything about our security. Uh, but I do work in the a lot in the front end or the back end for the front end, which is Node and a lot of React on the front end. You know, so you so I would say being a full stack engineer is that I know a guy who knows a gal who knows. And if you can do that in all of the pillars, you are a full stack engineer because you know somebody who knows somebody. But one of the one of the catches there, though, and I think you're right, Jem, is like when I hear full stack from people, sometimes what they mean is front end and back end JavaScript. And sometimes what they mean is entire slice up and down the chain. You know, the databases you're touching, the protocols, the networking aspects, the load balancers, uh, whatever else may be in between, including the code and the layers. So I think the definition of some of these terms out there is that's actually one of the reasons I'm glad to talk to you today about this topic because one thing that bugs the mm, out of me is <laughs> acronyms and terms that we make up. I was on a call just this morning where like three acronyms came up and immediately I'm like, I don't know what any of those words mean. Can somebody please explain them to me? I feel like in this industry, we're getting worse and worse with these terms that people don't know. And let me throw another one out to you recently. There's a thing called a jam stack which uh, is very popular. And you can go look it up. It's pretty easy to understand. But all these, we keep coming over the words to explain things that already exist. And full stack's just yet another one of those, in my opinion. It's like, why did we have to give this thing a name? Well, FYI, it's WTF with the TLAs. <laughs> and what's a TLA? <laughs> a 20-letter acronym? KPIs this year. So oh, you're going to put in the Q2. <laughs> That's right. Fewer TLAs is one of the KPIs. KPIs are OKRs. Uh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We're not putting any of that in the show notes because who cares? Uh. <laughs> so. I, I, one, I, I fully agree with you. Um, I won't go into a side about like where all this tech jargon come from, came from, but it actually wasn't that long ago. It, it did come from a very specific time and place in, in California. But 
I know what it would have mean teaser. But when I get a, a recruitment email that says full stack, what I really see is we don't really know what we want. So we're going to hire someone who can probably poke around in all the places. But it just tells me they're very directionless yeah. and or cheap. They don't want to hire a back end and a front end and database engineer. So they're just going to hire one person who can magically do all of that. You know, there was some advice I got years ago, which uh, stuck with me. And it went something like this. It's that, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier too, which made me think of it. You, you can know a little bit about a lot of the things in your stack. You know, all the stuff that you do, a little about database, a little about security, a little bit, a lot of stuff. But you can only go deep in a couple of areas. So the way it was explained to me is like a T, the letter T, capital T, where you'd be wide across a lot of things and have awareness, but you're only deep in, you know, a set number of areas. And by doing that, to me, that's always helped me not get overwhelmed by the latest tech craze that's out there. Like knowing I don't have to be an expert at all these things. Just be an expert at the couple things that I'm really passionate about and help me stay employed. And then just at least have a functional knowledge of a wide area that touches those areas. Yes. The the older I get, the more I realize what I don't know. And it actually is really difficult for me just to let go of things that I will... I will probably never learn. I'm probably not going to learn um, how to set up, uh, you know, K-means clustering in some sort of machine learning algorithm. Like it's, it's just, it's not that I couldn't learn it. It's just that I probably won't ever because there are better uses of my time. That actually hurts as an engineer because you know we want to say, oh yeah, I know that. I, I understood that reference and I get that. But increasingly, it's harder and harder as people become more and more specialized. Um, there was actually a post a while back by Dan Abramoff from the React team, but it was just, it was really, really great because he just said like, yeah, you, you all know me for this and, you know, arguably I'm a pretty decent engineer. However, here's a long list of things that I have no idea about. And it was just, it was so good because we don't do that enough and like bring that humility back to the community. And it was just a long list of things that some of them I'm like, oh yeah, I understand quite a bit about that topic. And Others, like, yeah, I have no idea what that topic is. But not enough people do that. Like, we all want to say, like, oh, yeah, I, I know KPIs and all these other phrases in passing. So we we look like we know what we're doing. But, you know, we're we're all there fumbling around the same as everybody else. We just put on a good face. About I have it. to say that, yeah, with, with you, I, I think the most seductive thing about React, the framework, is Dan Abramoff. <laughs> Are you, wait, did you just say Dan Abramoff is seductive? Uh, uh, well, I could have, but I. <laughs> what I meant to say by that is that uh, um, he's he's. I think he uh, the way he talks about it, the way he thinks about it, the way he thinks about frameworks uh, makes React feel inviting. Um, and I felt the same way about Steve Sanderson and uh, and Knockout. Uh, one of the beautiful things, you know, back in the day when Knockout was the bomb, if you can still say that, the bomb, um, was that it was so beautifully presented um, by the author um, or an author. And that ability to communicate effectively with humility is a very powerful force. And this will circle us back to, I think, what you were going to, you know, our topic today, Jim, which is what it takes to be a good enterprise engineer. And it ain't just about the tech. Yes, that... That is a that's a great segue award. I mean, you should you should do this for a podcast. <laughs> Perhaps maybe uh, do about twenty eight episodes of it. 
perhaps? Let's take a quick word from our sponsors. Do you want to spend more time building great applications and less time configuring your tools? Do you want a deeper understanding of the Angular platform? The experts from Narwhal can help. Narwhal is a consulting firm made up of former Angular team members and wonderful web experts who help developers build apps better and faster through their consulting, training, and open source tools. You may be familiar with NX and Angular Console, two of Narwhal's free tools that already help top companies worldwide to build ambitious Angular apps with modern tools and practices. If you want to build software like Google does, consider working with Narwhal. Learn more at nrwl.io slash realtalk. That's narwhal.io realtalk. And we're back. And Jim, uh, it was your idea to kind of talk about this topic for the show. You want to kind of explain why why you're passionate about this? Because I really liked this. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I've, I've been really uh, blessed to have the opportunity to speak, at, you know, countries around the world. And, you know, <laughs> I definitely hung out with you in another country, John. And, uh, like, I meet a lot of developers from a lot of different walks of life. And I think one of the overarching theme- themes that uh, everybody talks to me is like, oh, you know, I really want to get into Google or Facebook or Netflix or Microsoft. I want to get into these big companies because that's the dream. And I had the same dream when I was younger. It was just, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to, to get in. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Boiler Room. Uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, but it's about the stock market. But in it, the protagonist talks about he just wants to hustle hard, hustle hard, and make it big on Wall Street. And that's the dream. And when you get there, all your problems are solved. And every crappy software engineering uh, partner you ever had and bad managers and uh, tech debt and all these things are gone mysteriously when you make it to the ranks with the the titans of industry. And I just think like, yeah, yeah, you know, good for you. Who am I to to, to poop on your dreams? But it's it's a myth, like just like everything else. We have the same problems just like everybody else. Just like we were saying earlier, even someone who's really, really smart, like, uh, you know, Dan, Dan Abramoff or, you know, your Sarah Drasner, Ryan Holt, they all have things they're not good at. Uh, myself, I'm not good at many, many things. And the same for any company. They're, the companies struggle with the, the same problems that some of the small startups struggle with. And it's better just to dispel that myth as an industry so we're just a bit more humble and we're not uh, misleading people when we say like, oh, come join this company because we have all the answers because no one does. And it's it's sometimes better to make the place where you're at a little bit better rather than just like, I can't wait till I'm out of here wearing a fur coat, giving you the middle finger, walking out the door because I'm off to Silicon Valley. <laughs> I don't think that's actually a healthy attitude we should we should take. And that that's what I really want to talk about today. We'll get started. Were you one of those people? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. From the, I've been doing uh, JavaScript maybe probably a bit over 10 years now. Uh, for that, it was Java, C-sharp. PHP, you know, the, the good old the good old fashioned languages. And I was always like, yeah, you know, it'd be nice to make it at one of the big, big tech companies because, you know, I won't have to deal with, um, I don't know, people that are a bit slower moving. Everybody's going to be fast. Everybody's going to be smart. Everybody's, everybody's going to be agreeable. Uh, there's innovation happening constantly. So when I graduated college, I started a small healthcare company in Georgia. And I immediately was hit in the face 
because I just had my CS degree. So, of course, I knew everything there was to know about software engineering. And then I got smacked in the face with the real world. And that is that software engineering is nothing like they teach you in school. It is uh, messy. It's imprecise. Um, and really, it's full of humans making mistakes. And it was, it was a really humbling and eye-opening experience. Fortunately, I had some really good mentors who helped me out along the way. And just like said, no, no, Jim, that's, that's not how you do things. It's like this and like this and like this. And, you know, if not for people like that, that were humble and really patient with me, I probably would have never been the engineer that I am. Uh, and then from that company in Georgia, I had the opportunity to either move out to uh, Silicon Valley or New York. And, you know, I flew out to uh, out here. Uh, it was actually San Mateo, which is about in the middle. And I'm like, oh, I'm not really feeling this yet. So I, I went with New York. And then from there, I learned a bunch more. I was doing a lot more Python, um, a ton more Python, actually, uh, just a tiny bit of JavaScript. Uh, that's where I picked up Angular 1, um, which I don't know if you've ever done Angular 1, but those those are some dark days. <laughs> <laughs> really dark. <laughs> yeah. You think What's that's the dark? What Man, is your interpretation was, of dark? Yeah. Those were merely cloudy days. You got you went dark. No, no. I say dark because, you know, before you can just write this freehand JavaScript, you can't, you, uh, I want to say console log, you alert things to debug them. Those, those weren't great, but at least we're all kind of like, yeah, you know, it's the best we got. Angular came along and said, hey, we've got a better way. And I said, hmm, okay. But I really think it picked up because people are like, oh, Google's using it. And they know what they're doing. They're really smart. And they surely can't do any wrong. And it turns out they were wrong. Uh, they had a lot of good ideas, which other things were built off of. But Angular 1 was just painful to use. It was very opinionated. Uh, the, the syntax was a bit obtuse at times. And the learning curve was just vicious on that thing. Yet we all persisted because we said, hey, this enterprise company full of really smart people knows what they're doing. And I think it, it's, that's a, a great example of a place where we need to say like, okay, do we really need this piece of technology? Do they, do they actually know what they're doing? Like, let's question what all the big tech companies are, are doing. And they're not, they're not always right. But I, I am open to hearing your angular stories if you have any. Well, we do. Uh, but I, the thing that I think I pull from what you're saying is, I mean, certainly one of, um, one of the comforting things behind uh, picking up Angular was that you said, well, at least Google's behind it. Uh, and uh, so, and, and I think people do the same with React. Well, at least Facebook's behind it. Um, and that your, your caution is, uh, it's great to know that a big company is behind it and it's got smart people in it. And both of those companies have smart people. There's no question. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's it's right or that they did everything right or they're doing everything right. Uh, and so we shouldn't get lost in the aura of the big company behind something. That would have been true for micro, well, you know, what if Microsoft was behind it. There was a day, there was a time when, when if IBM was behind it, that was the stamp of approval. Or if Microsoft was behind it, it was the stamp of approval. I think as you get older, you realize that stamp isn't worth much. Well, to me, I, I feel like I've thought about that question a lot about why do people get so excited about 
Google or Facebook being behind React or Angular. And I, I get it that the company's there, but I ask why a lot. So why is that the case? And with the advent of you really picking up steam the last year or so or more, uh, you know, there is no huge company behind that. Uh, there's people using it, huge companies, but the ones who are actually doing all the work are just open source developers, you know, Evan Yu and Sarah Drasner and Chris Fritz and many others. So why why is that picking up now, especially because there's no major company funding it like that, uh, funding the developers specifically? And I've been thinking, and here's my, here's my hypothesis. It's not that there's a big company behind it that we care. It's that we all want this thing to have dedicated resources on it who are there to build it, address the issues, uh, evolve it, and support it. I think it's what we all want to make sure that the things that we're working on are not going to go away tomorrow if uh, I create my own framework called uh, the Papa framework and, you know, I get run over by a stray cat and, you know, because buses are, you know, old school. But I, I think that's that's kind of where I'm coming from. I mean, I don't think it's so much like this Google or Facebook behind it because Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, they've all been known to do great things and they've all been known to drop great projects too, so doesn't make me feel any more confident that a big company's behind it. To me, it's, is it going to be there? Are they going to work on it? What do you guys think? Do you, do you disagree? No, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, there have been really great libraries created by uh, single people or maybe a team, a really small team of people, but it does give you a bit more faith that, the the bigger libraries, which let's face it, a framework or a library is like a big investment for your company. Uh, you can't just easily rip it out and replace it with something like that. Uh, you know, whatever you want. Even if we were to um, remember the days of underscore and Lodash, like I mean, you used to be able to swap them out not too with too much difficulty, but now I think it would actually be quite a big. A big hassle if you were. So we're talking about big companies and kind of the faith that we have in, in building streams or versus uh, one or two person. Like Durandal was one that was uh, small than Aurelia, uh, both by the same author, Rob Eisenberg, a friend of mine awards. He created this one thing himself and he kind of crafted an OSS group around him. Uh, Evan Yu really you know, crafted Vue for a while, but he's got a large team around him now. Is this, is it changing, Jim, that people can start doing this? Uh, I think so. That's that's the beauty of the web is that you, if you have a good idea, then other people can contribute and give back, and it's just easier to pick these things up. the The counterpoint to that is it's actually more difficult because increasingly companies are aware of that. You know, making developers happy is pretty important in the long run, so they tend to um, snatch up great library authors or kind of like, oh, we're going to help sponsor this. And then like slowly they can take it over. Um, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just something we should all be aware of. I think a good example of that is Babel and um, picking up uh, Sebastian, uh, who is the original creator of Babel. And, you know, he works at Facebook now. Uh, a lot of the really smart or React contributors now work at Facebook, um, which, you know, it's a good move. If you're gonna if you're gonna use a library, you should hire the people that built the library. Uh, but a lot of times, what I see is it's it's a lot of marketing, and that's definitely something about 
enterprise companies that people should be aware of that there are marketing teams, there are developer advocates. It's not it's not a bad thing necessarily, but it's just something to be aware of when you say like, oh, at Netflix I built uh, John Papa's Head .js and it's the hottest greatest thing ever. Just be aware that like I'm speaking for my company and I have a vested interest in this com- in this project doing well. Like it's not an unbiased opinion. And this isn't a, a slight against anybody or the industry. It's just like as software engineers, we should be aware of like there are these influences on what is happening and that enterprise software often has uh, ulterior motives, should I say. Yeah, I'd even go so far to say that when somebody out there, like I, I'm known for doing Angular and I do a view in React as well, but I'm much more well-known for Angular, I have much more experience with it than the other two. But if I go out there and I say something about Angular, people should wonder, is it, and, and I invite them to wonder this, is he just saying that because he has invested a lot of his time and experience in that product? Or is are the things he's saying coming from an altruistic point of view? Uh, it's good to question those things. And it's not that I'm trying to be evil when I say things. It's your experience. No, I think it's both, John. I, I think it's both. I, I think that most of the people, most of the time, you're you're we're dealing with good, you know, well-intentioned actors. When you speak about Angular, you're com- it's coming from your experience. The biases are coming from your experience, but you believe it and you're honest about it and you're ready to re- uh, reveal the flaws as you encounter them. And I'll bet you're the same way, Jim, with whatever technology you're using. Uh, your, 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 you know, your, whatever it is you're using, you say, wow, this, you know, if you, if you like it, you're feeling like this thing really works for me. And I'd like the world to know how well it works for me. That's perfectly reasonable. Absolutely. And, oh, sorry, John. Uh, I'm sorry. I say it feels funny sometimes when people ask those questions of, Hey, which one's better react angular review, which is the common thing today. And my answer is usually, look, I I've written apps in all three and I like all three for different reasons. And people are like, yeah, 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 I don't want to hear that. Which one's better? <laughs> it's like, why, why can't we all just get along and pick the tool that we like? <laughs> well, it, but I, so, so one of the first things is your comment up, Jim, I think, is that you realize that things, that these technologies are not some shining star, but they're just products of human invention and that they have a lifetime and they have warts and you begin to real at least I did um, that um, uh, that they aren't the only thing that is and ever will be and uh, and so you don't have to fawn over them and you can open your eyes to alternatives I think that's a that's a an amazing moment for an engineer when they go from something they've been clinging to that they've known you know in their short lives as the only way to do it and suddenly discover that there are other ways Absolutely, and that that's a that's a good summation. Uh, I, I think in my younger years, I would have defended any technology that I used. You know, getting into heated arguments at a, at a meetup that someone's wrong and I'm right, and you know these things that people still do. And then as you get older, you realize, well, you know, you can both be right. It's it's not this zero sum game. Uh, sometimes Vue may be the better solution for your team. Sometimes it, it could be Angular, uh, but. I think people get so dogmatic about their their technology choices, but part of that, and this is sorry, this is going to like human the human condition, but like part of that is just how we're wired, and that's 
we're we're so afraid of being wrong that we're going to yell really really loud to prove how right we are um versus the more humble people like you John you're you're someone that like you know we, you get off stage and we'll have a candid conversation you're like yeah you know I'm struggling with this and all of that that's something that I really respect in a lot of great engineering leaders is they'll be like yeah you know we may have made a, a wrong turn here but here's how we're going to fix it versus there's people that are you know they're on Twitter and they're yelling and arguing and like oh these this person's wrong or you know you're not a senior, senior engineer unless you can do this or you know people like that which I I'm very much against uh, I will tell you most of the mistakes I've made and hopefully you can learn along the way but yeah as far as technology goes like we shouldn't we shouldn't be so this is the only one true way uh, it's really about understanding it for your team and that's something that as I've moved up from that company where I started at in South Georgia, where it's you know it's a five five person engineering team, to a bigger analytics company in New York, where it was you know maybe a a twenty five thirty person engineering team, um, I realized that the scope of the technology change, uh, the technology you choose, really it really changes. So the decisions you make are much more important. Uh, if I was going to rewrite my blog, which I really should, you know, I'm just. I'm we just so darn lazy because <laughs> like I I feel like that's true for most web developers we do it every day but the thing that gets the least attention is our actual websites I put zero work into it that's a that's a gem confession there don't judge me <laughs> but I think you're talking about some of the myths right now really and, and that's a lot of that I think is that there's a lot of us out there in these conversations if, if we just take a step back and think about our perspectives. That's what we're sharing is our perspectives, our experience. It's to me, that's more important to share those and to consume them and listen to them than it is to be right. What is being right anyway? And I think that's one of the things I struggle with when I was younger in my career is I admittedly early on was more concerned about being right, doing it the right way until I just let go of that. You know where I am now? It's no longer that I want to need to be right. I just need to avoid being wrong. How's that for a, for like drops the mic and goes. <laughs> um, uh, but I actually do think there's wrong. There, what there are is a lot of rights. And, um, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a different, a really important difference. And as you become more senior, you're, you, know, you, can, you can recognize the wrong. You can you can look at something and or something that somebody's doing and say, you know, that's just not going to work. That's just not the way you deal. Um, but it's harder to just pick the the right. Do you guys feel that, or or am I like you want to push back? Am I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> John told me to say that you are always wrong. You just message me. It's like don't listen to a word this guy's talking about. <laughs> Never happened. That's a uh, myth. That's another myth. Another myth. No, but I, don't, don't you feel? I mean, don't you feel like you look at something and you say that's just wrong? And as you get older, you actually get better at saying no, 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 no. That's just wrong. Do you do you see that or no? Or are you just like? Or are you just saying no? Word. That's you being a curmudgeon. No, you're right, and. One of the things about being at a bigger scale, at a bigger um, enterprise-level company, is that the cost of being wrong is so high. It is so, so much higher than it is at a smaller company. Uh, it, in terms of man hours, in terms of dollars, in terms of just uh, 
time wasted on the wrong decision or oftentimes, especially at a larger company, the wrong decision, you may not realize it for two, three years. And then you're talking about, you know, it could be billions of dollars in hours to refactor something. Or you made a design decision early on that was just the wrong choice and it's just too costly to fix now. So you, you patch around it. Uh, I think a, a good example, and this is not knocking, it's just an example of an interesting decision was Facebook in the beginning said, we're going to build it all in PHP because those were the days. And then increasingly as the engineering community matured and we, we got bigger and Facebook got larger, they said, well, maybe maybe developers don't really want to write PHP. It, it has its upsides and downsides. So they're like, uh, we should do something about that. But no, we, we can still find plenty of PHP developers, but it's not the best language for our use. Let's just write a compiler that compiles PHP into something else. Um, that's a decision that they were able to work around because they had the resources and time and money to do that. Versus if you're, say, I don't know, a thousand person in an engineering team, you couldn't necessarily afford that. So you'd have your entire stack running on I don't know, legacy PHP or something like that. And that has a real cost to future recruitment, future scaling, um, any sort of like weird bug fixes and patches that you can't, you can't fix in the future. Um, another example of that is... <laughs> The banking system is largely written in COBOL, a language that most people have never even heard of. And the cost to change that would be monumentally expensive. So they're they're just not going to do it. And so to, to circle back, yes, it's it's good to be right, but it's better to be not wrong. I would yeah, rather take the yeah. I'd rather take the medium approach where I'm like yeah, this isn't like the most bold, daring, sexy, new software engineering strategy, plan, architecture, framework, library, whatever. However, it's not the, the most uh, it's not the most tame, boring one either. It's the, it's the middle of the road that I think is going to be pretty safe either way. That's, and that's really what enterprise development is probably most, most about, is kind of picking the, trying to pick that middle ground. Uh, for instance, uh, my team at, at Netflix, we're, we're not on the latest version of React. We're not, we're not on that bleeding edge. <gasps> like, oh, new. I know. That's blasphemy, <laughs> dude. <laughs> You're not already we're using not hooks? Really. Come on. You're not using hooks? You know, hooks are ready for production. They were ready for production when they were announced. <laughs> despite all the warnings saying despite don't you, you all kid, warnings. but despite all the warnings, people were actually using them on the internet and then complaining about them and then... People like Dan were like, folks, <laughs> think about what you're doing. <laughs> yes. Uh, and because you know what? We, at, at large scale of any company, you don't want to be on the bleeding edge because, you know, it's called the bleeding edge for a reason. You, you get too close and, you know, you fall off, you get cut and it hurts. And the larger your organization is, the more it's going to hurt. Uh, let's say we switch to the newest version of React and, you know, we're all using hooks and portals and all these things. And it turns out there's a serious flaw in that. Well, well, crap. I just have 20 engineers that wrote six months worth of code and features that we'd have to go refactor now. That's an expensive cost. That's not a cost I'm willing to pay. So, you know what? I'll hang a version, I'll hang back a version or two. And, you know, I'll, I'll let the the brave the brave explorers figure out those edge cases. And then, you know, We'll migrate up eventually. 
And there are brave explorers out there. And I think it's, I think it's valuable. You make a great point, you know, to, to have people who are willing to go on the bleeding edge. But I think companies should be willing to look at the leading edge, not the bleeding, but the leading edge, things that are tried. There's some kind of a, a track record for the bleeding edge stuff to me is where you have to weigh your risks. Uh, like I get asked this question, you know, about a technology once in a while, like, hey, should we use X? And let's say it's a new thing. I always look at what is your timeline? What are your deliverables? You know, what are the different pressures on this project? You kind of look at all the things around the context of what you're asking, not just is, you know, are hooks ready? It's, do you have to deliver this thing in a week? Uh, is this going to be the last time? And this is a question I like to ask people. When are you going to be able to maintain it? Is this the last time you're going to be able to update it this year? Because at some companies, they might have budget to say, you know, look, you're going to work in this project this month, but after that, you know, the budget's gone, you got to move on to another thing. So you've got to think about how long is this thing going to live after you touch it? And is it going to be supported? And to me, all that has to go into your decision on what technology do you choose and how do you design it? Otherwise, if you're doing bleeding edge, you better be ready to, you know, have someone say, I told you so when there's blood all over your hands. Yeah. Well, and I, so I look at something like that and I say, what happens if I, if it doesn't work out? Uh, and I, that's the, you know, I'm, I'm always looking at every decision from a risk perspective. Uh, and it you know, doesn't mean I don't take risk, but it means I ask the question, what would happen if this feature wasn't there or if that aspect of the feature wasn't implemented or if we use this technology and it, it fails on us? Do we have a place to go? Do we have a, you know, we have a backup plan with um, uh, and I think again, as you, you, if you've been in this game long enough, you start, you start thinking that way. And as a young engineer, I didn't think that way at all. It was just full speed ahead. Um, no idea that anything could go wrong. No, I was I designing think, my own frameworks when I was, was younger. Oh, God. I, <laughs> I mean, what the heck I was I thinking? Own, <laughs> I wrote my own SQL server. <laughs> because there were none when I started. Yeah, there was no I, such thing as a database when you started? <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, was all, it, it was all NoSQL databases when I oh, started. Oh, okay. Sorry. You missed, uh, you missed the joke. Sorry, Ward. Yeah, always. Oh, <laughs> and, and I read this great book by C.J. Date about SQL, and, I, and I, so I convinced my client that the project that they wanted, um, it should really wait until I had, I had written a SQL server for them in APL. And months went by, and it was just the most horrible mistake. Um, I've only done it like done that four or five times since. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, if we're admitting to mistakes, I, I'll tell you when I did was back. What was it? You may have heard of a technology called ADO or ADO.net before yeah, yeah. Word or Gem. Sure, sure. No, not it's, familiar with that one. It stood for Active X Data Object. It was basically a data access technology in, in the .NET language. And I think it was the late 90s. It's actually before .NET, actually. Just I was saying ADO. it was pre.NET. Yeah. yeah, just regular ADO. Before ADO even came out, I had written something that effectively was ADO. Because in my infinite youthful wisdom, I thought, hey, wow, I'm going to save the world by creating a data access library that loops over objects and makes database connections and manages pools because I know better than everybody else. And we implemented it on a project that we were on uh, at my consultant, the place I worked at the time. And I was 20-something at the time. And, oh, my gosh, what an awful mistake. It's just, just awful. 
I couldn't remember being happier than when we were able to rip that out and put ADO in, <laughs> but it actually was released. So these are great junior engineer. Now the, now, the cool thing is that they try things that I, you know, I think you're, that's a big risk. You'll never be able to, and they try things that I wouldn't think, you know, it's, and they, sometimes they bring it off. Um, I, I guess that's why it's always great to have the fresh blood coming along because I get crusty. But still, um, as you get along, you start thinking about those risks. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Word here, inviting you, no, encouraging you to attend the Dev Intersection Conference in Orlando in June 2019. Dev Intersection is one of my favorite conferences and is perfect for those of you whose JavaScript life intersects the Microsoft ecosystem. John Papa, Dan Walleen, and I will be there speaking and giving workshops, and so will many of my heroes. Look at that list of terrific speakers on the website and be impressed. These folks are as eager to meet you as you are to meet them. The opportunity to talk directly to speakers and share experiences with other attendees is why you should go. It's why I always go and come home with fresh ideas about topics I knew well and insights into technologies I've been promising myself for weeks that I'd get into someday. This conference kicks doors in. Learn about it at devintersection.com. Mark your calendar for June 10th through the 13th, 2019, and get a discount when you sign up with the code PAPA, P-A-P-A. See you there. And we're back. And Jim, when we started talking about this, uh, you know, we talked a lot about the junior side, as, as Ward said. There's a lot of lessons that we were talking before the show that you've gone through that you kind of wish you knew back then. Uh, you want to kind of share some of those? Yeah, lessons that... Uh that I wish I knew coming in, I think most of it is just like there, there is no silver bullet. And that's definitely one of the, the things I learned in school. It's, you know, one of the engineering myths of, uh, I forget what it's called. I mean, the, the actual principle is called no silver bullet. There's no one technology that will solve all of your problems. Despite that, that's like the most common thing I still see every day is, yeah, you know, I, I hate my company. If we were using Vue, this would have been done already. And oh, I, gosh. I, <laughs> I hear that a lot too. Not just oh, God, yeah. anything. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I, I saw people jump frameworks simply because everybody else, they'd, they'd been so badly implemented by people who didn't understand the original framework that the, uh, <laughs> that they couldn't just change that and deal with the fundamental problem. They said, no, it's the framework. And they rewrote the system in something else. That I, I see that so often on uh on twitter that I'll, i might be describing a problem and someone says well you know if you were using angular with rxjs you wouldn't have had this problem and i like i, I don't respond to those people because they, i just want to be like you don't know me you don't you, you have no idea the problems that i solve every day and you don't know the scope and the cost of these problems and i think engineers that naively just say like oh I have this magic technology that'll solve solve your problems and everybody should use it and all these things. Uh, I, I, I think it's really bad for the community. It's not, I think it, it is really bad for the community. It's, it's not thoughtful. It's, it's arrogant. And that's not just a junior thing, right? That comes from developers of all ages and experiences sometimes. That's, and that's the worst when I see really experienced, really, really respected people come across and say things like that because you know, every every person's struggle is different, and and that's true at a much bigger scale when you talk about enterprise level companies. And you couldn't possibly comprehend 
and no one can unless you're there, like the, the troubles that they have. So I, I especially dislike when really respected people do that because people look up to them and say like, oh, yeah, these people are dumb. They're smart. They should have known better. Um, when in reality, that's, that's something that was a hard slap in the face when I finally made it to um, a bigger company, when I finally made it to Netflix. It was, you know, we we have the same problems that everybody else does. You know, we have, we have legacy code. Um, we have, you know, we're, we're battling with upgrading frameworks and the, and the cost of that and, uh, keeping libraries up to date and, you know, plugging security holes and the same as every, everybody else. There's no magic place where this isn't the case. Uh, the only difference is one, you have, you have a bigger team so they can become more specialized. Like, you know, I don't have to do SQL queries anymore. In fact, I, I am embarrassingly bad at SQL. You know, I took two years of database in college. I uh, have, you know, written tons and tons of queries. But now if you're like, select all people named John in the state of Florida, I'd be like, oh, okay, um, select. You know, I would struggle with it because I just haven't done it in forever. Because there are people that are much better than that and they do that for me. That's probably one of the benefits of uh, working at um, a big enterprise but the other side of that coin is it's still the same problems. It's just now someone else gets to deal with it instead of you, and you can focus on a smaller subset of these problems. You know, one of the other enterprise myths that I, I've seen a lot, and we've all, again, we're shaped by the experiences we have. I worked at some large enterprises, uh, Microsoft's one of them, Disney, uh, right before that. But before that, I was a consultant at a lot of companies, some pretty big ones. And I see two sides of a coin of this one myth. The myth that when you, once you go to an enterprise company, there's somebody who does everything. I've worked at companies who, who are like that. Like, this person just does front-end JavaScript. This person just does databases. This person just does releases. And that does exist. Some of the companies I was at, that was very segmented. But even at the same companies, there would be teams who are like, I don't have that luxury. I do all of that. Even at big enterprises, there are still teams who people write their own code, design their own stuff, work with the business directly. PM it, you know, uh, they do their own agile scrums and they write the database queries, deploy everything and set everything up in production. I don't think there is a cookie cutter for enterprises that says, if you go to a big company, guess what? Your life will be exactly like this. And I hear that a lot. I, I, I do. I hear people thinking, geez, I, if I could only get to that big company, I would never have to touch XYZ again. And you just don't know that. I, I think in the, in the rise of becoming a senior engineer at a at a large company is you realize there are things you're passionate about, and there's things you're not as passionate about. Um, you know, you don't. I, I I do like sometimes I like some good uh, Nginx tuning. I think that's really fascinating. However, it's not my true passion. I will never be that good at it, and that's just something I accept. However, I do still like building UI. Like I said, I primarily work in uh, React, but increasingly more and more just straight Node. Um, but there's just something alluring to me about building UI that I'll, I'll never drop. And moving up to a big company, I think it's really important to understand that about yourself and say, like, where does my passion lie? Is it uh, building out test frameworks? Is it, um, I don't know, writing, writing bots for GitHub to help other engineers uh, become more efficient. It's 
that's half the battle of being a, a really uh, senior engineer is just like understanding what are you good at? What do you want to be good at in the future? And kind of directing your career there. Otherwise, you know, you can end up, you know, I'm managing a server farm in Alaska or something, getting paid a ton of money, but yeah. not my passion because that's just the way I ended up. Uh, and that's actually a, a good segue to the the next engineering myth is that you can you can get really siloed at uh, at enterprise companies. In fact, you almost will guarantee to be siloed on some project. And sorry, we, we spoke earlier about jargon, and that's just more jargon. <laughs> uh, siloed would be you're just in one area, one very, very, very specific area of the product or company or feature or something like that. Uh, you think like, oh, cool, Netflix. So I, I can probably touch like the the streaming algorithms or the recommendation engines or our content delivery network or something like that. But no, I work on a very specific part of Netflix, the the non-member experience where if you're not logged in uh, to Netflix, that's something my team handles, which is a it's a fairly large team. It's a fairly again, it's one of those things that doesn't sound complex, but it, it's extremely complex. What, what's large to you? Just kind of get a sense. This is going to throw people off because um, people always think Netflix is really big. Netflix is about six thousand people total. Um, so, but that includes the production teams down in Hollywood. Uh, you know, our, our teams in Amsterdam. Uh, a small office in New York, San Francisco. So all around the world, like total 6,000 people. We have probably, uh, I'd say maybe 1,000 to 1,400 engineers. I could be off a little bit on that, but it's probably around that number. Um, so scale that to, you know, 120 million plus members. That means every team, uh, what would I say? Uh you take out the back-end teams. So that leaves about 160, around there, in the in the low 100s or mid-100s on the UI teams. Um, so you're like, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's not that big anymore. So divide that out even more. So you take out the teams for TV. So Xbox, PlayStation, uh, Roku, all the streaming devices are set-top boxes. Those are their own teams. Um, so then you have your mobile teams, iOS and Android. You take those out. And then you put in my team, the non-member team. So we're probably about 30 to 40 people total, which for me is a big team. But I know for other companies, that is that is a paltry, paltry size. Uh, but I, I think that's one thing I am proud about working at Netflix is we do tend to punch above our weight in terms of engineering efficiency because we... We have a big team, in my opinion, but it's a small team relative to um, kind of our impact. So I found that to be true in other enterprises I've been in as well, whether that's banks or insurance companies or software, you know, Microsoft as well, right? John, you you know, anybody who's working on an individual product, you think it's the whole company doing it. It's four people. Yeah, I've always been stunned by, you know, one of my favorite products, VS Code, how small the team is, really. Like when people talk about the number of issues that are open on the GitHub repo, like divide that by the number of people working on the product, and it's astounding, just astounding. Great stuff is done by, by great stuff anywhere, enterprise, startup, whatever is done by small teams. Um, and and I, I agree with you. Thirty is on the edge to me of of a big team, um, <clears throat> but it's actually typical. Um, 
So, so <clears throat> what makes Google or Netflix or something like that engine? It just means that they're engineering heavy because such a high percentage of the number of employees are in the engineering field. But they, they, they almost always break it up into these small groups, right? Yeah, and that's that's a, a myth about uh, enterprise companies. You're like, oh, I want to work for uh, Tesla, and I want to help write software for um, steering around obstacles on the road. But in reality, you know, you're probably going to be working on, uh, you know, making the the UI in the car a little bit faster, a little bit shinier. Is so you end up getting siloed at uh, these companies. So it doesn't matter if you're um, you're really passionate about this one area. Sometimes you end up where you end up, unless you like have a really strong preference or a really good. Uh, another good example of that is it's not quite enterprise, but it's a scale is NASA. And you think, oh, NASA, you help put people into space. But in reality, no, you probably write the accounting software to help pay the fuel people to help fuel up the vehicles that help move the space shuttle. Like something like that. And that's like a, it's just like a good reality check on people is just because a company does a certain thing, when you get in there, it doesn't mean you're going to necessarily be working on like the, the sexiest area that and the more or the most glamorous area. Sometimes, you know, you you gotta work in the areas that that pay your bills or just help keep the wheels moving. And the larger the company, the more wheels there are and the more uh fine grained uh just nuances that you need to have or that you'll work on. I I, I met a gentleman uh, years ago and I said, What do you do? He's like, Oh, I work for Google. I'm like, oh cool. Cause immediately I'm like, oh, search engine or Gmail or something like that. And uh he said, well, no, I, I work on Google Maps. I'm like, also cool. That is fantastic technology. He's like, yeah, I make sure that the, the, the text is correct when you zoom in to a street on Google Maps. That is my one job, which is an important job, yeah, but like, it's so, so, so specific that if you ever wanted to break out of that role and say, I want to get into um, artificial intelligence or something like that, it's very difficult to do because you're in one very specific spot. And the more you do something, the better you'll become at it. And it almost becomes the less likely you are to move out of that particular spot. Which is one reason the old saw was, and this had to do with salary as well. The only way to increase your salary was to leave the company and then maybe come back. Or uh, And uh, this, that's often the case with breaking out of a silo. Sometimes the, the answer is to move out, to, to leave the company. It's also good to get another perspective, but I, I look at it even more of a, not thinking of salary, just more thinking of your career. If you're trying to learn more things after a certain amount of time, and you'll know when that time is, it's good to look within or outside of your company for a different role, to get different experiences, to really see how things are. And as a manager, by the way, I foster that. Like if somebody comes to me and says, I'm just sick of what I'm doing and I need you know, I, I need to do something else. Or so, I was talking to somebody down the hall and it seemed like what they were doing was really exciting and I wanted to be part of it. As a manager, I've always felt like I wanted to applaud that. I wanted to move them on their way. Yeah, I agree. That's that's a good trait of a manager, of a leader, I would say, not even just a manager, but to help people achieve what they want to achieve, even if it's not on your team. Now, that's, that's how you do that. The... Uh... It's funny you had Ryan Burgess on a, a few episodes back talking about A-B testing. And he's actually my manager, sits next to me, uh, and we're friends too. But 
you know, he sometimes he keeps me in check in terms of just all right, Jeb, you need to be pragmatic and, and realistic about like engineering trajectory and uh, where you want to go in life. Because I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get really passionate about something. Uh, for instance, I was like, you know, I've always wanted to learn Android. We're ramping up our Android development. Uh, you know, Ryan, I'd, I'd love to be on that project. You know, you got you to put me on that, man. Like, I, I'm really passionate. I, I want to learn it, things like that. And he's like, okay, um, you know, how much Android experience do you have? And I was like, nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> Haven't even built an app. He's like, okay. Um, well, you know, we've got this course you can take for free. And I was like, I don't have time to do that. But, you know. Well, then you don't really want to do it. Yeah, exactly. That's the, but that's like, the test. That, that that's it, the test. Exactly. But you need you need someone that knows you and and trusts you or and you trust them just, and just be like, all right, man, you, you got to be realistic sometimes. Like, if you want to do it, you would have done it already. Or you would do this in your free time and come back and show me that show me that you're like you're one of the best Android engineers in the world. Because if not, then like you you should stick with what you're really good at. And this is not in a, any sort of mean or put down way. It's just like let's be realistic. I think um, you know a, a lot of the stuff they're starting to do with uh, uh, image recognition and artificial intelligence is fascinating. However, if there was a team in Netflix that does that, I don't know if we have one. But if we did, I'm not going to be put on that team. I'm not the best in the world at that. I, so, like, I don't deserve to be on that team. And that's... Right. There's no entitlement. There's, there, there's the entitled engineer, which I think a lot of... CF, you were talking about when you came fresh out of school and you thought you knew everything. That's the entitled engineer. There's no entitlement in this game. You, you want to know something? You go out there and um, build, your, build enough to dazzle somebody with it, to convince somebody... <clears throat> that you belong on that through your actions and your performance. Um, and if you don't have that, then you're not serious. And it and it it takes a mentor sometimes to to let you know that that's where it really is. Exactly. It, it takes a good manager. It takes a good friend to just be like, all right, man. Like, okay. Like, I'll, I'll foster your growth in any way I can, but, like, you have to want to grow in that area. And that's another, another uh, kind of myth about um, – or not myth, it's kind of a reality check about working in a large enterprise corporation is like, it's easy to lose your edge. When I was young and hungry and try, like, trying to work my way up the startup ladder uh, to like eventually make it a big company like Netflix, uh, you know, I was at home every day coding and building these new projects and like pushing the boundaries of what was possible and learning about those like uh, web APIs that were new and people didn't even know about it. And, that was that was years ago. Now I probably, if I'm being honest, like I don't do that as much. I don't code as much as home. Um, I tend to read a lot more about what other people are doing, and just kind of distill that information. But I'm far less likely to go out and try the alpha version of React and try this brand new thing because it doesn't have as much impact in my day to day job. Um, and that's something to be aware of. And it's it's really hard. That's something I've. I've discussed with like my director, my manager, and I say like, how do you keep from losing your edge? Just that like that that hunger and desire to keep building and doing better and better things. And honestly, I, I don't have a good solution for that. I don't have a good answer. It's it's something that eventually every engineer will hit. You say like, do I want to keep learning the newest thing? Do I want to keep being out there testing things, breaking things, or do I want to settle into a, a comfortable routine. And I think if you want to settle into a comfortable routine, that's fine. 
That's cool. Absolutely. I mean, lot, I mean, I need those people, right? I don't want everybody <laughs> hopping all over the place. What, what you don't want is that disconnect where somebody says, because they read about it that morning, um, that they should be moving over into that field. I read about that in CIO Magazine. Let's yeah. shift the entire company this way. <laughs> yeah. Can't I tell you how many times it. I've heard that from an exec. Like, no. Uh, I remember in Microsoft, you know, people were talking about IoT, right? And somehow IoT was the hotness. And they were all saying, you know, I really want to get into that. But uh, the guy who really wanted to get into that was the guy who spent his weekends <clears throat> working on Arduinos and building strange bots and coming in and, Putting on and showing people the things that he had done with it, and reorganizing his focus so he could make every project he touched go to IoT. That's passion. That's showing that you care about it. And then you know what? Enterprises will look at that, and they and they will they either the enterprise will recognize it, or somebody will recognize that you have made the commitment, and they'll put you there. Now this all reminds me too of uh, something that I like to do to myself quite a bit, and I also encourage other developers that I mentor to do. And that's ask questions and listen. And it sounds so simple, but it's actually really hard to do. It's like when you're doing something, you're deciding on what you're going to do next at your job. You're deciding how you're going to go ask Ward, why did you code it that way? You're wrong. Uh, Any of those things. Stop yourself for a minute and really ask questions of yourself of, of why is that person doing it that way? Why? Think about why. The five whys are really important to go down that road to really find out why people are doing something. Why is this app, somebody might say, this app has to use React to do this. Why? Why is is React a choice in this case? What brought you there? And keep diving in. And the second part of that is, is listening. We are all way too quick to just sit there and talk over somebody. When somebody talks... Don't just listen to the words they're saying, but really try to understand why they're saying them. Because a lot of times they have a perspective that's completely different than yours, and you might actually learn something from that. So that took me way too long in my career to learn those things. And I don't always practice it, but I really try to get back to that uh, quite a bit. And Ward and I actually do that to each other a lot when we pair program, and it comes up with some really good, uh, good things in the end. So on that note, uh, I'd really like to one more because uh, you like actually segue to like my last and final point, which is that's perfect because I was going to ask you everything to wrap up with, Jim, because this is your show. Yeah, no that that last point you made, John, was excellent because that's that's probably the final, not the final final because I I am always learning every day, which is fantastic. But one of the bigger lessons that I've learned from um, moving into a big corporation is. Engineering is really about people. It, it's it's not about technology. And I'm not talking about like becoming a manager or like going that trajectory. It's yeah, it, it's about how to interact. It's a with social people. skill. It's yes. a social activity. We do not do this in isolation. We do it with other engineers. Yeah, exactly. And that that is something that is uh, that that is something that is like extremely underrated. You think, oh, uh, you know, Google or Microsoft, they're they're made up of the best, smartest, brightest coders in the world, which, you know, a lot of them are, arguably. However, what it is is people that have, they understand how to work on a team. They understand their strengths and weaknesses and how to communicate with each other and how to have empathy and, like, how to how to take uh, 10 disparate people and build something greater than all of them. And that, that, to me, is, like, real solid enterprise engineering. 
it's not about just being the smartest person in the room or the loudest or having a room full of 10 smart people. It's it's about treating each other equally and just coming together in this way that we don't talk about enough in tech. We always think it's about the software. But at the core, it's it's always about the people. It's always been about the people. And enterprise just has more people. So it's just you really have to level up your people skills to become a really, really good engineer. If you're the smartest person in the room, find another room. Exactly. <laughs> All right. And I'm out. So. <laughs> and I'm out. <laughs> Words of wisdom, deep thoughts from Word Bell. All right. So uh, wrapping this up, because I honestly, we could go on about this talk for a while. I know there's so much to learn and uh, maybe we'll have you back on at some point. We, we talk about other things that we learned, maybe things, things that people could pick up or uh, where they could learn how to be a better developer. Absolutely. I, I love talking to you both. Yeah, it's been great talking with you. Every time I talk with you, it's awesome. So uh, from a selfish note, I'd love to have you back on. From the show's note, it's time to get to someone to follow, where we talk about and call out somebody in the industry who's inspired us in some way, technology or otherwise. And Mr. Bell, you had somebody in mind. Well, I do. And it's not somebody in technology, but it was something about the way this person did things. And it's I'm, I'm talking about Alex Honert, who's the guy who free soloed, that is no ropes, no nothing, up the face of El Capitan. And it was, it's in the movie Free Solo, which I highly, highly, highly recommend. But it's what's Was that where they free Han Solo from the uh, yeah, prisons in Star Wars? Oh, uh, yeah. Don't bring me Star Wars. Do not bring me Star Wars. So that's another topic. So, so what, what, how does this pertinent? Um, it's, here's this guy doing this scary thing, scary to us, um, almost inconceivable. And any mistake is death. So the only way to do it is perfection. And he doesn't, you know, he, he both understands that, but when you find out what's inside his head, you see why he's not as frightened as everybody who's looking at him. And it's not because he's a daredevil, but it's because of his uh, capacity to focus and to practice and to examine everything and rehearse everything and to consider what could go wrong at all the points and, and get all of his alternatives and get the whole thing in it, you know, in it wrapped in his head. And I thought about, I thought about that and, and what I could learn from that as a, as a developer, not because I believe in, in waterfall design and development, but, but it was, um, it, it wasn't a risk for him. It wasn't a risk taking approach. It was an elimination of risk approach. It was, uh, uh, realizing that it, he was doing something that nobody else had ever done, um, and yet bringing to it um, long years of, of skill and thought and care and applying that to the task in front of him. And I, I'm just very impressed. It's awesome. And we'll put these in the show notes as well. My someone to follow is Ali Spittle. Somebody who I've only interacted with online. She is a writer on the dev.to website. And I've recently started reading quite a bit on that website. It's a great community site to go to for technology. Uh, and just a lot of the stuff that she writes is uh, its really awesome. And it goes right in line with a lot of the things we've been talking about today uh, as far as you know how to be a better developer and some great ways that you can learn and interact with other people. So definitely check out the work that Ali Spittle is doing on Dev2. 
And Jim, who is your someone to follow? Uh, my someone to follow is, I think, someone that is extremely underrated. They they do work at Netflix. It's a technologist. Um, his name is Jacques Favreau. Uh, he's on Twitter at Beta or Bust. But from the beginning, from when I started three years ago, he he has always helped me out. Uh, he works on the web core team, which means he's constantly doing these big projects, putting out fires. But he's always taking the time to to speak slowly and explain to people very succinctly about what he's doing. Um, and it's just someone that's that's really humble and has learned a lot, and will always is happy to share the, that wisdom with you anytime. And it's just, uh, in my opinion, like a very seriously underrated engineer that he just releases these like brilliant helpful packages that kind of fly under the radar. We use them heavily at Netflix, but um, just uh, just a really a really solid dude uh, and someone that like is worth following. I, I follow him on Twitter and I mean, of course, I sit down the hall from him as well. But it, it's just someone like you will you will learn a lot of things just just reading his Twitter and just like seeing his approach to software design and um, kind of software design as it as it applies to you know 50 100 engineers that that he has to uh, kind of wrangle in his purview that's great we'll put jack in the show notes as well i just checked out his twitter address and gave him a follow myself hey jim thanks for coming on today and as always it's great to talk to you thanks john thanks ward and for all of you out there thanks for listening to us one more week of real talk javascript you can catch us every tuesday morning we'll see you next time Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealtalkJS. 